0: Dr. Kelly McGonigal is a research psychologist, lecturer at Stanford, and an award-winning science writer. I've personally been a fan of her incredible work exploring the mind-body connection and the power of resilience and compassion. She's the best-selling author of The Willpower Instinct, The Upside of Stress, Yoga for Pain Relief, and her latest is a must-read. It's titled The Joy of Movement, How Exercise Helps Us Find Happiness, Hope, Connection, and Courage. Hey, with a title like that, you can't help but love it. You're definitely gonna read this one. Kelly, welcome. Thank you for having me. It is so great to have you here. You are a prolific author who's written on some of my favorite topics, starting with yoga for pain relief, which yoga saved me from back surgery, willpower, stress, but why stress is good, and now the joy of movement. So-
1: we must be kindred spirits.
0: I'm like, what are you writing about next? Um, So let's start Yoga for Pain Relief, which I saw in 2009 when I was actually practicing yoga for pain relief. So let's talk about that book and the inspiration and, and, yeah, Yeah. start there.
1: Um, Well, the inspiration for that book was I was out in the world um, teaching yoga for people with chronic pain, um, and I had been teaching at Stanford for a while, uh, starting out with people who primarily had back pain and teaching movement classes and um, trying to to come to a movement practice that integrated breathing and mindful movement and body awareness and also social connection um, that turned out to be really useful for people not only with back pain but with all sorts of physical um, injuries and limitations and other forms of chronic pain like the kind that I have myself, which isn't so much about dealing with the structure of the body, but more the way that the nervous system processes pain and sensation. And so that book was basically a, a distillation of what I'd learned from teaching individuals and, um, and the science, which was really just emerging at that time, demonstrating that, that mindfulness and particularly mindful movement um, was a way to re-educate the brain to experience the body in a way that um, is empowering, that not only relieves pain, but teaches you a different relationship to pain for those of us who are never going to get rid of our pain, but need to find a way to stay engaged with life. Yoga is really good at that.
0: Can you talk a little bit about your personal journey?
1: Yeah, so you know, I have a body that produces pain the way that I think other people get tired or get hungry. I think I know there's supposed to be all of these um, varied ways that the body responds to being awake and going through life, and my my nervous system and brain treat it all like it produces pain. So um, you know, I wake up in the morning not in pain, and as I go through the day, I just get more pain. My pain is primarily. In my head, in my face, in my eyes, but it can also be systemic. Um, and it never really responded to any of the normal things. You know, there's no like MRI scan that says there's a problem in your head that's causing the pain. And I discovered early on, um, it was actually through a mindfulness based stress reduction class, it was the first time I was introduced to the idea that instead of when you're in pain, um, instead of feeling like that pain, is a hundred percent your experience of yourself in life that you could have a quality of attention that makes room for something other than the pain. You know, this was a point where by the end of every day I'd be like taking pills and crawling under my, my covers and being like, I guess that's the end of the day for me because I can't deal. And mindfulness taught me how to make room for something else in the pain that was pretty radically transformative. And, um, and yoga yoga I did something else as well but it was really that first MBSR class that that taught me that this was possible
0: so what was it about yoga for you was it I always say like there's a difference between all different types of yoga different practices you mentioned breath work you mentioned mindful movement to me that's the magic of of Mm -hmm. yoga it's it's moving mindfully it's breathing it's not necessarily about you know the where my toe is positioned in the specific pose. What's your take on that in terms of healing?
1: You know, I have found for myself and for a lot of the people who end up um, who ended up populating my classes, it was never about the structural issues. Like, you have pain, so let's do this one shoulder stretch, and that's going to relieve tension in a way. You know, for for them, whether because of aging or injuries or illnesses and surgeries, we were all sort of having this experience of like, oh my gosh, my body has betrayed me. And there's something about how you learn to be with your body in yoga that transcends a forward bend, makes your lower back feel better. It's a way of being with your body where you're you're having a relationship with it that is like a friendship. You learn to listen to it. You learn to trust it. It can produce sensations also of pleasure and strength. Um, You learn that there are things you can do that make your body feel better, but you can also enjoy your body. And I feel like that, in many ways, is more my approach to yoga therapy for pain. This idea that you, you—it's like you're learning a new relationship to pain through the mindfulness, but you're also learning a new relationship to your body. Um, that is, you know, a lot of this is very psychological for me, and I think that the body teaches us lessons. It's um, sometimes in a way that we get more powerfully than if we were only thinking about things. So I think of yoga as being a kind of therapy that, that can allow you to accept your body, to listen to the pain, to, to have gratitude even for a body that produces pain.
0: Sean Korn, I remember, had a great line in one of the classes I went to, um, your mind forgets but your body doesn't, something along those lines, like when you're working through something, it's like, oh, okay. Um, so with regards to yoga today, it's like we're ten, I, I look at like where we were in two thousand and nine when I think the book came out. It's like, oh my God, it's a different universe.
1: I know. I, I don't know the universe as, you know because when that book came out, I was much more involved in sort of the public facing yoga world and going to the yoga conferences. And it's much more private for me now. I'm doing my yoga, and I, I teach in certain um, settings. But I I'm not even sure I know what's happening in the yoga world right now. Um, tell me, what's what's changed the I, most? I, I'm
0: the same. We have a, we have a three year old and a four month old, so my <laughs> yoga practice has evolved. at ten minutes at home, pretty much. I haven't been to a public yoga class, but in, in a long time. But like to me, it's just yoga is just everywhere now, mm-hmm. in a good way. Like there's mm-hmm. hip hop yoga. There's you know, f- ten years ago there was Lululemon, and that was it in terms of apparel. Now there's Alo. There's every major brand is in yoga. Like it's just. I think it's just become p- part of the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it's interesting, I think, also, like, back then, I think s- some people would debate, like, uh, yoga, maybe pain relief. I don't know. Like, is uh, it like yeah. I, I think like science has caught up a little bit, too
1: yeah science and i also i think people's direct experience so i'm not sure that the research has accumulated at the speed that yoga practitioners would like <laughs> i mean this is still the case it's it's very interesting there is much better and more research on meditation practices than the body practices i don't know why the funding isn't there or what's happening but um yeah i think what i actually observe is that um, practitioners you know healthcare providers they have gotten the feedback from their patients or their own direct experience that this stuff really helps and I see them the movement in that direction
0: That's fair. that people
1: are paying attention, and right? That sometimes that is as good as scientific proof, right?
0: Agreed So your next book you have these great topics. So the next what you went from yoga to willpower mm. Let's talk about that. So Why why willpower? Now let's talk about self control and the power of self control.
1: So, like every book that I've ever written is an offshoot of a class that I was teaching at Stanford. And the Willpower book it was a course that I taught called The Science of Willpower. And I taught that class because I had been teaching a class on how to live well with stress. And people kept coming to the class, the questions that they had, that they were the ideas they were interested in is, like, I want to make this change, but I can't. Um, that was one of the things they were really stressed out about. I want to do this thing that's good for me. I want to make this change, but I don't have the willpower. I don't have the self-control. And I was like, well, gosh, there's a lot of interesting research about this. I should just, just teach a class where I teach people what the research is, and I give them experiments, and they tell me, does the science work? So the first few years I taught that class, it really was like a big science experiment. I would say, here's a theory here's what I think the theory means. Here are like three things you can try this week and over the the course of the quarter. And you have to write me every, your assignment is tell me, did it work? And um, I learned a lot uh, about how to translate science from teaching that class. Um, because of course the, you know, the science, these little experiments or whatever the interventions are, that's different than does it actually work in, you know, diverse people's lives. Um, and so that's how that book came about. And um, I, I, I think that spirit of look to the science for ideas and then pay attention to your direct experience underlies my, my basic approach to these things.
0: So how does self-control work? If we all want to get yeah. better at self-control, what what do we do?
1: Well, first of all, let's start with a definition that I like. So too often people are trying to control themselves as if who they really are is bad and wrong and broken and they need some kind of like, you know, part of themselves to restrain themselves or rein them in or, or Reshape them into the right kind of person. And um, I define willpower as the ability to do what matters most to you, even when it's difficult or some part of you doesn't want to. And so for me, a big part of self control or willpower is about figuring out what matters most to you. Um, I talk about three different powers I will and I won't, are what we usually think of for self control. I will is the ability to encourage and motivate yourself to do things that are difficult or maybe produce self-doubt or anxiety to make the time to find the courage. And I won't power is the ability to resist temptations that pull you away from your values or your goals. So you choose not to say something or buy something or eat something. But the third power that really I think is the foundation for self-control or willpower is want power. And that is, do you know what your core values are? Do you know um, if you act in alignment with certain values, at the end of the day, you'll feel good about who you are? Um, Do you know what the roles and relationships are that bring you joy and meaning? Do you have a a direction that you're moving in in life? Do you have clarity about those things? And that is the foundation for for what I think of as healthy self-control, because what you're really choosing is to align your energy and attention with the self that... You aspire to be and the best part of you that you already are And I think that's quite different than this idea of self-control like you're a bad person So let's get it under control
0: right, it's almost The closest comparison in my head I kept on thinking of is I don't like with regards to nutrition and that's where i'm gonna go with the next question I tend to say treat instead of cheat mm Different mindset, like, am I enjoying this versus am I, you know, am, is there a shame? Yeah. Um, but with regards to food nutrition, I think when I, when you say willpower, I tend to think of struggles that people have. Like, what do you think we're doing wrong there? Or what can we do better with regards to food specifically? I think that's where so many people struggle.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so. One of I would where I would start is a kind of sense of common humanity about it that food serves a lot of functions for us, and we're never going to change that. You know, I think as human beings, we are built with the the instinct to treat food as not only nourishment, but also as an opportunity for social connection and celebration. Um, It can comfort and soothe us in ways that are biological. I mean, like, so one of the most interesting findings I came across is that when your stomach is fuller, Um, It releases oxytocin, which is a neurohormone that helps us feel connected to others. And so I think that there are some very primitive ways, and and we live in an environment that is constantly trying to feed us and not always with things that are healthy for us. So, you know, I would start from the, not this idea of like, what are we doing wrong and how do we do it right? But like, let's come to terms with what it means to be human and to live in a food environment where we have a lot of opportunities and, and maybe also a lot of suffering that would lead us in that direction. And then to get clear about what matters to you. As I said, you know, I'm not the kind of willpower expert who is going to prioritize, say, being at uh, some kind of desirable weight over being of service to the world. So if you tell me you have issues with food, my first question is, well, what is it getting in the way of? And is this even the place we want to put your energy and attention? Mm-hmm. Like, maybe it's OK to go through life feeling a little out of control with your food. We're not at some weight that someone has told you is ideal that fighting that struggle may not even be the most important struggle for you and the best use of your time in this mm. life. And then if it actually is, like you can point to a health issue or energy or some, some way that this you feel like what you're eating and how you eat really is contributing to the quality of your life, then again to, to start to pay attention to the process of, of how you're eating and how you're feeding yourself. And with, with any sort of behavior change or you know willpower challenge, I encourage people to start with mindfulness. How is this happening now? And what are the consequences that you want to change? And start to experiment with choice points where you don't have to change everything at once. It's Maybe it's one item at one meal or it's one bite at a time. That is a different experience. Or one thing that you choose to feed yourself because it's consistent with your values and how you want your relationship with food to be. and to trust the process of making choices that feel consistent with your values and training yourself to use that as a guide.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. It's one of the reasons why I love yoga, meditation, mindfulness, because you're connecting and you're feeling and you just make yes. better choices, I, and then it, it just it spills over to everything.
1: It does, and this is something that we don't talk about enough. I feel like the be- the biggest benefit I got from my initial commitment to a strenuous yoga practice, Ashtanga Vinyasa, was somehow I could not operate in denial as well. Like if <laughs> I, you know, if I were to say be dishonest to someone, I would feel the discomfort of that in a way that I didn't prior to that yoga practice or, you know, if I were to eat something that was inconsistent with my values, I just feel it. And I noticed it happened within that first year of practice. And I was so um, fascinated by it and that nobody says this is going to happen to you. And I'm not entirely sure I figured out why, except that I do believe yoga teaches you to pay attention to cause and effect.
0: It's the good gateway drug. Mm-hmm. I would say like, you don't you don't get into yoga and then after yoga, you're just like, I'm going to go to Burger King. <laughs> no. Well, now they have an impossible burger. Yeah. Maybe that happens now. But like you just start to make better choices yeah. and it just spills over at everything. Um, so how can we each get a little bit more willpower if we just want to like tune it up a little bit?
1: Yeah. So there are probably two pathways you could take, sort of depending on what appeals to you. One is to think about willpower like a, a biological state or resource. And that's one of the most interesting scientific ideas, that when you are the best version of yourself and you're making choices that are consistent with your values and long-term best interests, whatever that is for you, like you can see it in the brain. And you can also see it in things like your heart rate variability and, uh, and what's happening in your nervous system, your autonomic nervous system. So one way to make you the best version of yourself is to do things that prime your physiology to be in that state of higher heart rate variability and and balanced nervous system, to have your brain in a state where it has more access to literally your prefrontal cortex and its ability to regulate what's happening in the middle of the brain. And those are practices like sleep, um, eating a diet that uh, regulates your blood sugar, keeps you sort of steady. Um, Meditation, we know tends to teach the brain how to do this process of paying attention and making good choices. Um, and exercise also seems to do that. And I, you know, I start to list these things out and I can already hear people being like, oh my gosh, Kelly, those are the things I need willpower for. You just named them all. <laughs> Sleep, eat better, exercise, meditate. That's not gonna happen. But the truth is we are, we're biological creatures. So to the degree that you can care for your, your biology, you change the version of yourself who is sort of the default operator. So that's one pathway. Um, Another pathway is to drill down on this idea of paying attention to your values and doing something to affirm them. Um, Actually, you know, there's a practice called values affirmation that has been shown to help people with every type of conceivable willpower challenge, whether you're trying to reduce smoking or drinking Or um, improve your health or become you know a better parent or learn to regulate your emotions Um, and that's the practice of reflecting on what matters most to you and why it matters to you often it's done through writing but you can do it through contemplation I do it every morning before I get out of bed Um, and people will often think well how does that give me more self-control but the thing is is it's putting you in contact with the self who wants the things that you would probably define as, as being like the, the thing we put our self-control toward. So when you are identified with that version of yourself, you make different choices. And this really requires a kind of a self-trust. A lot of people think that who they really are is the version of themselves who is most exhausted, most depleted, and most likely to give in to temptation or sort of most out of control, like the me I really am is the one when I lose my temper and then I say the thing I regret. I think a lot of people have that intuition, and so they're thinking of self-control as controlling their true self and trying to become some better self. But you know, we know from, from both research and I think a lot of the contemplative traditions teach us that that's not like your fixed self, who you really are. You also are this person who cares about your well-being and can make strategic choices and has a vision for your life.
0: It's a big mindset shift, though.
1: It It is. But, you know, everything I do is about mindset shifts. Um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, you asked, you said that the books have these really interesting topics. But I the way that I choose what to write about next is I feel like I get this pull, like I'm paying attention to the world. And I'm seeing conversations that are really destructive and are reinforcing suffering. And I felt that way uh, very strongly about willpower, that people were having a conversation that was reinforcing suffering, um, giving people advice that was amplifying stigma and shame, um, focusing on things that, that aren't going to help people experience the life they want. Um, and I, you know, I feel that way about stress and, and everything sure. else, and now well, movement.
0: <laughs> well, we, we can go on to stress, Working through, going through Let's your go, body of work. What's
1: wrong with how we talk about stress?
0: Yeah. So like the upside of stress, another, I remember when I saw the title of that book, I was like, wow, this is interesting.
1: I, you know, my, you're making my publisher very happy because th- <laughs> these are not what I would have called these books. These are all publisher chosen titles.
0: They did a good job. Yes. So, but there's content in the book, which you wrote. So why, why is, what is the upside of stress? Why is stress good for us?
1: So stress is what arises in your brain and body when something that you care about is at stake. And so The fundamental good of stress is that as human beings, we have the capacity to engage with life when it's difficult um, or when important things are at stake. And we need to rise to that challenge or we need to tap into our strength, find our courage, or connect with others. We need to find a way to learn and grow and make meaning. And stress is is really, it's a set of biological instincts and capacities to do that. And um, for too long, we have defined stress as one of those instincts, fight or flight. Sometimes people get fancy, fight, flight, or fright. Um, and we talk about stress in this very limited way as the as if you know, the body and brain has one way of responding to all things that we would call stressful. And it is a state that is toxic for our health and interferes with our ability to be our best self. Maybe it makes us hostile, or it makes us paralyzed by fear, or it makes us look for the nearest exit rather than to show up and engage in skillful ways. And the problem with that is the science is very clear. That is not the only way the body and brain respond to stress. And um, there are so many ways the body and brain respond to stress that are both healthy and skillful. And if we can develop our repertoire of stress responses so that we don't always freeze we don't always become our most hostile selves under stress Um, we can actually lean on our innate stress responses so that moments of stress we're not only better at stress but even the response that our body has in moments of stress can actually be healing and healthy rather than toxic
0: so how do we get good at it
1: well, so I talk about three different ways of responding to stress that are sort of universally helpful and that we have this biological capacity for. Um, the one that I'm gonna start, not in the order I usually talk about them, but the, the one that I think is actually most important, which is to have a bigger than self stress response, because I think it stands most in contrast to a fight or flight response. Um, and this is the fact that when you are in a stressful situation that your brain Recognizes, or your body recognizes is beyond only you, either because you're not alone in it, or there are people who care about you who could help you through it, or um, there are people who've been through this before and maybe have wisdom to share with you, or maybe because you're not the one who is struggling the most in this situation, that somehow your your brain latches on to this mindset of, this is bigger than me, and it's not a do-it-yourself project. Your brain and body can produce all these, these neurochemical changes and physiological changes that give you hope and courage and nudge you to connect with others, to team up, to ask for help, to find the person that you can lift up. And um, it's driven by a bunch of different hormones, including oxytocin and, and dopamine and endorphins sometimes. And it, it basically, when we choose this approach to stress, we're basically tapping into our capacity to have hope when things seem hopeless, to be catalyzed to action rather than paralyzed by despair or like a defeat response, and to allow stress to become an opportunity to strengthen relationships and to to literally know that we aren't alone. Um, And so that's one of the best ways to get better at stress is because I find many of us have have thought of stress as a do-it-yourself project. Either we think that being good at stress means not being stressed. So I'm doing all these things in like inside me to not be stressed, think about it differently, take a certain drug, you know, take a bubble bath, and I'm gonna like fix this inner state that I shouldn't be having. Or we think that being good at stress means I'm I alone can handle this, and I'm good at stress, so I'm gonna take care of business and get it done, and I'm just I'm in charge and I'm doing it and watch me. And the truth is that that works for some things, but. Um, we have a very different experience of stress when we allow ourselves to lean into our fundamentally interdependent nature.
0: So you mentioned hope. It made me think, well, how much of a role does spirituality play in this?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it can play a very important role, you know, but at the same time, I think the, the most pivotal idea is that you aren't alone and that you can feel connected to something bigger than yourself. And for some people, that's going to be a mission
0: or mm-hmm. a purpose.
1: For some people, it's going to be a community. Um, for some people, it's a, a sense of awareness to life itself. And uh, I think that's the thing that if you don't have any of that, it makes it very difficult to survive. You know, of course, the ordinary stress, but especially the extraordinary stress of life.
0: It's funny how so much comes back to purpose and mission. We had a a panel at our Revitalize event a year ago with a couple of functional medicine doctors who were talking about brain health specifically. And we're like, what's the number one thing you can do for brain health? And everyone's expecting like more kale or whatever the answer is. It was purpose. That was their answer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's human beings are also meaning making machines. And so, if you're clear about what matters to you and you have a purpose, it becomes a lens through which every experience gets processed. And there's something about purpose in particular, you know, maybe it's connected to the hero's journey, mm-hmm. but it allows us to take a growth perspective on our lives. When you have purpose, it's easier to imagine that this obstacle you're facing is an obstacle that you will overcome. It's easier to appreciate even traumatic events you experience because you can begin to see them through the lens of, I wouldn't have chosen that, but I can channel it towards a higher purpose. And I think if you lack that purpose, it, you can feel like you're living in a, a chaos narrative as opposed to you know, a redemption narrative. Hmm. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons why, why meaning and purpose are so important. They so, change the stories we
0: tell. Right, which is a huge thing. You hear hmm. p- people say that Quite frequently, you need to change the narrative, change the story. It, in society, what do you think we get so wrong about stress?
1: Well, I think what I often hear is people think uh, stress is a signal that you are doing life wrong. And there's a version of your life where you have everything good in it and none of the stress. So like if you, are, if you find a relationship stressful... Mm-hmm you're either in the wrong relationship or there's a better relationship for you that won't be stressful. You know, if you find parenting stressful, you're not the right kind of parent. If your work is stressful, maybe this isn't the right job for you. There's some other job out there for you where you can learn and grow and contribute but it's not stressful. And it leads people to have this 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 fantasy that if they could just get life right, they could have everything they want and none of the stress. And um, you know, there's one that I often talk about that found that meaning in life and stress were positively correlated because when you are engaged in roles and relationships and goals that are meaningful even if that is like fighting the things in the world that you want to change you're going to experience stress
0: right well doesn't some of this come back to mindfulness and gratitude in some way where it's you know as an entrepreneur i'll talk to entrepreneurs and you often catch yourself saying like oh we just got to get to this and it'll be all all good or what have you and then (laughs) I joke now. I know better. Where I just say, you know, your your problems don't go away; they just change. Yeah, and it's stress too, whether it's life, work related. You just yeah. Well, Hans Selye. Being present. Oh,
1: yes, I mean, Hans Selye, who actually coined the term stress, defined the absence of stress as death.
0: Right. <laughs> so so we we'll move on from stress to your your latest must read book. When I saw the title, I was like, ooh, another one. Well, we put, I'm going to like this. We put
1: all of my words in it. Okay, so we have to say the full title because, you know, I was joking about my publisher titling my books, but every book I've secretly hoped that I could get certain words in at least the subtitle, and they've never shown up yet. So we got, like, all of them in the subtitle. So why
0: don't you – I know I got <laughs> the first part, the joy of movement. The
1: joy of movement, how exercise helps us find hope, happiness, is it the other? I should memorize myself. Harder. Is it <laughs> happiness first? That was not one of my words. Happiness, okay, that's good. But my words, hope, connection, and courage. And um, the, you know, the idea of the book is that through movement, we can access these innate human capacities to experience these different joys.
0: So let's go back to how did this happen for you? There's a personal story behind it. So how did this happen?
1: Um, you know, it ha- wasn't
0: at a CrossFit box.
1: No, I mean, you know, as long as I can, so going back to early childhood, I have used movement as a way to both deal with anxiety and experience true joy. Um, I started doing aerobics in my living room with VHS tapes when I was a little girl. And um, I've been teaching group fitness for 20 years. And I have just, I found that, you know, we've talked about meditation and yoga, and I, I find that they are strengthening practices for me they give me clarity they they ground me they hit they help me deal with really difficult stuff but movement and particularly dance and and cardiovascular exercise give me access to a different co- version of myself that activated joy and energy and enthusiasm and optimism um, and so this book is basically and you know, i said they're all based on teaching this is, the, this is the book that expresses what I've learned from teaching movement for two decades and, uh, and wanting to understand better why it is that I see these amazing communities form around movement and why it is that people are often their best selves when they move and why people fall in love with, with different movement forms, even ones that I don't, I'm not in love with, like running or swimming or hiking.
0: So what is it? I have so many questions because part of it, I think, is the. So I joked about CrossFit, but I think I
1: have a lot of great CrossFit well, stories in well, the book.
0: What so many people love about CrossFit. So like my father-in-law is like in early seventies, like goes to a CrossFit gym, and he loves it. And what does he love really? It's the community mm-hmm. and like the site. He's it's just they've they've nailed community. So okay, how much of it is community? How much it is. The, the, you know, the movement itself, like the mechanics of the movement, how much of it is the, you know, there's something spiritual about being in a room and everyone's kind of doing the same thing. You feel it at a concert and just what's that's
1: collective joy. uh, uh, That's my favorite of all the joys (laughs) that movement can give us. Collective joy is my favorite. It's it's so there are two ways the two things I really want to highlight So make sure I come back to the one that you said, is there like the, the movement itself, like the specific movement, the like, mechanics. like what like. it means to jump on a box, because that actually is very important, but there's a, a version that is much more general. That's about what changes in our neurochemistry when we get our heart rate up a little bit and we move. And, uh, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, we, we've all heard about an endorphin rush, and we think, oh, and so it feels good to exercise. But when I looked at the the basic neurochemistry of exercise, what it's really priming you for is not to feel good, but to connect with others. And you look at the profile, the neurochemical profile, when people exercise and you see increases in endorphins, but also endocannabinoids and dopamine and oxytocin, that these are this is a neurochemical profile that makes it easier to bond with others, that makes you... Um, get more of a warm glow from any connection makes you more willing to trust others and cooperate with others. And, um, that's the basic biology of movement. Even if you do it by yourself, you know, you go for a run by yourself and then you, you come back and you're a different kind of partner or parent or, or coworker. Um, and at the same time, if you move with other people, right, that it, it completely amplifies that because then you have the feeling of connection to literally the people that you're moving with, and so collective joy is this idea that you know you've got this neurochemistry going on that's priming you to connect, and then you have an experience of moving with others where you you can literally sense yourself as connected to other people. It's a whole like trick of the brain that like if mm-hmm. we are moving together at the same time, my brain starts to perceive not me as separate from you and moving with you. But my brain starts to perceive me as part of like a, almost like a super organism that you and I are both a part of, that can be an amazing kind of euphoric feeling.
0: So you mentioned joy and it, I think about movement. So I always, I, something I say is like the, I, the best exercise is the one you actually do. Yes. And what, the one you actually do is probably the one you enjoy. And I'm curious, what's your perspective Okay, I could go, I hate running. The last time I ran was the last basketball (laughs) game I played in 20 plus, a long time ago. And so in your opinion, is there a greater benefit for, let's just say, me running with a group of people every day, like five miles or whatever is deemed like a a, a great cardiovascular workout with a group of people, five miles per se, or which I don't like, I hate it, but I do it every day. Versus do you?
1: Or you're joking? No, no I'm, I'm joking. Joking. do not do it I, I, do it run. I hate okay, running.
0: Yeah. <laughs> versus me practicing yoga at home for 10 minutes, which I love doing every day. Mm-hmm. Which has greater benefit?
1: Uh, you're the only one who's going to be able to answer that question. <laughs> Come on, think <laughs> about that? our willpower <laughs> conversation. The, so the question is, only you will know. Um, and it's an experiment worth trying. If you suspect that, particularly if the people you'd be running with... So if you're practicing yoga at home and you are aware that something that is missing in your life is a community of people where you don't have to fill the other roles and relationships in your life, like the things that define you and the way you have to show up in those other roles, if you want a community where people are happy to see you and you get that kind of support, that comes from that presence. And, and often it develops into real support when people are in crisis. Like if that's missing, running is a really good way to experience that. It doesn't have to be running. It could be CrossFit or swimming sure. or rowing or dancing. Like, you know, if you want that type of community, I would say, yeah, like it's worth putting in the effort, but it, the, the benefit isn't to do it, to improve your heart. Your right. cardiovascular well, I guess health. that's what I'm
0: getting at. Like, as we're thinking about exercise, it's, what you're saying, what I'm getting is, it's more about the mental and emotional than the physical.
1: Well, I'm a psychologist, so that's what <laughs> I'm interested in. I, of course, it's going to benefit your heart. I mean, everyone uh, already knows that exercise. No, is I good know for that. You.
0: I know that. But
1: and that motivation doesn't seem to work as well as when people actually find the movement they love or the community they love. But this is reminding me now about the specific movement and that piece that I wanted to say about um, why movements matter. So movement functions as a a way of defining ourselves at a very primal level. You know, if if I were to look in your brain, if I were to look in your brain and figure out how do you know who you are? How do you tell that story of yourself? The parts of your brain that are processing feedback from your body are very highly represented in that. You know in part who you are by your posture right now, by your heart rate, by your breathing, by what your muscles are doing, or the absence of information from your muscles because you're not doing anything. And so when you move in certain ways, you build the identity of the quality of that movement. So you go to a place like CrossFit or anywhere where you are doing big, powerful, explosive movements. You are doing things that demonstrate your strength. You're lifting more than you ever thought was possible. Your brain is literally understanding that movement as saying not, I did something strong, but I am strong, I am powerful. And so I think movement matters because we identify with the qualities that we express in movement. So, you know, people who love running often love it because they feel free. Mm -hmm. They feel like they are headed somewhere. They experience themselves as somebody who persists when they're tired. And uh, one of the reasons I love dance and kickboxing is when I dance, I experience myself as somebody who is connected to like a life force and is joyful. And when I, I'm kickboxing, I I sense bravery in my body, that fighting spirit, that that fighting spirit. And so I often encourage people to think about finding the movement that inspires them. Like if you were to watch somebody move, you would say that person is X. Like that's who I want to be, then try that movement. And don't think about necessarily the mechanics of because it will make my biceps strong or something like that.
0: So it's about, again, I go back to it's, listening to yourself, knowing yourself, doing, t- taking some honest inventory, what do I like? Where do I find joy?
1: Yeah, and, and trusting that movement can become more than something you have to squeeze in in the most convenient way because it will help prevent a heart attack 20 years from now. I mean, I'm really, you know, there are very few things you can do with your time and energy that can have more benefit for your mental health and your happiness and your physical health. I think this is movement is something that's really worth investing in because it can become so intrinsically enjoyable. It can strengthen your relationships with others, and it can have meaning. And then all those other side effects that is, I think, why people initially come to it. But you don't have to sacrifice all those earlier benefits, too. You just have to find the movement for you.
0: In terms of what do you think is missing from a mindset in terms of the way we've thought about movement and working out, is it again, is it like chore versus joy?
1: The, the most destructive mindset is that people think about movement as a way to improve a body that is inadequate. That we are constantly being told to use movement as a way to sculpt the body or to lose weight or to build muscles so that we will be more acceptable to others or to the inner voice in our head. And, you know, that can so dramatically interfere with the natural joys that are inherent to movement because if that's what brings you to movement, you're so much more likely to spend the workout looking in the mirror and feeling self-critical rather than making eye contact with the person who's working out next to you and giving them a high five. I mean, just in every possible way, that mindset sets us up to miss the meaning and the joy and also strengthen, you know, ways of being with ourselves that are just ultimately about suffering
0: in your research i know it's highly individualized but in your research have you found that there are certain types of movements that generally are pretty good for everyone
1: um yes well so the one that surprised me the most because it's one i spend the least time doing is moving outdoors and there is something about being in a natural environment that you like. So it's not going to be the same environment for everyone. Like I would feel scared to death in certain natural environments, but put me in a nice like waterfront park um, where, you know, I can see a skyline and I'll have this. Right in, here yeah, in Yeah, exactly, I know. Um, for other people, it's being isolated in the wilderness. Um, but there's something about being in the right natural environment for you that, that completely changes the way that the brain operates, that makes people feel immediately more hopeful, immediately more at peace, um, immediately more confident about their ability to deal with the problems in their lives. And um, so I, I've come to trust that as a really powerful intervention, in part because the effect seems to happen so quickly. So, you know, as little as three to five minutes in a natural environment and movement enhances it. So being in nature is good. But walking in nature amplifies it because of, you know, it's the natural feel better effect when you're using your body.
0: Well, that's what I was going to ask you about walking specifically. I love... We, we yeah. live right here. I love the park. We, we take our kids. Like, I love walking. Yeah. I love urban walking, too. Like, walking just as good. Yeah, walking
1: if you can walk. You know, yeah. if you can't walk, whatever your version of walking is, um, you know, using a wheelchair. Sure. Or, um, but I think that the reason that walking is often so so powerful is that it's a full-body experience. And you it's a metaphor. You are literally moving forward. You are You are on a path. Mm -hmm. And the mind, you know, it naturally, it makes, it makes meaning out of that action. And, um, but I, I also think that there's something about finding the movement for you. And now having talked to so many people, um, who fell in love with a certain type of movement, I think that we, maybe we're, we're born with it, our temperament or our life experiences or our goals and values that, I believe every person, if they tried enough movement forms, would find the thing that lights them up in a way that is different than the the simple, yeah, I feel better when I go for a walk.
0: (laughs) So we talked about serious ashtanga, vinyasa practice, Mm -hmm. mindfulness, teaching, it's everything. I'm curious, what's a day in the life for you?
1: In my normal life. In the normal life. Not Not, not, you're promoting a book. Um, normal life, I would say I spend about half my time teaching and in preparation for teaching. And there's a lot of preparation that goes into teaching. And so on any given day, I, I tend to teach a movement class every day. Um, and then I might teach a lecture at Stanford or, or give a talk, a public talk. I think of that as teaching as well. And that's about like half of my day would be planning to teach and teaching. And then the other half of my day thinking about how to learn so that I have something useful to teach. I spend a lot of time reading science. And nobody ever asked me about this. I, I consume studies the way that other people eat food. I mean, it's like a constant stream wanting to know. You know, I am on Google Scholar just maybe reading 30 or 40 studies a day, at least the abstracts, to try to um, continue to update my understanding of, of the science and where we're going. Um, and then processing that information.
0: So where, where are we going? What's some interesting, exciting science? You've written all these meaty, these big meaty topics. I'm like, what's, what's next?
1: Well, so I haven't written a book about compassion yet, but that's actually been a very important part of my work as well as my research um, for a long time. And so I, I spend a lot of time reading science about how to help people develop their compassion and also how people experience compassion and the benefits of that. So when I think about, you know, I don't know what's next for society. I, so I'm very interested in that because I believe that compassion is an antidote to so much of the suffering in the world. I, I feel like um, the, the joy of movement, I always feel like there's a certain pain point that I'm also speaking to. And a pain point that I'm very interested in right now is the sense of social disconnection and loneliness as well as there's a change happening in society right now that is documented where people are, are acquiring uh, less trust in human nature and uh, less, so they're sometimes just referred to as benevolent worldviews, where you think that the world is becoming more just or that people basically are more good than evil. Um, benevolent worldviews are really important for for societies and for personal well-being, and there's been a trend towards a decline in that. And I mean, you can make lots of arguments for why, and is that justified? But I, I'm very interested in helping people who want to maintain benevolent worldviews to do so. And so part of the joy of movement, it's like we're talking about movement, but actually the message of the book. Is one that supports benevolent worldviews that that people have these amazing capacities for connection and courage and transcendence and i think you know where we need some science and probably where i'll go next is whatever whatever is an antidote to that
0: so something that movement can help with is something you mentioned earlier you struggle with anxiety it seems like Mm -hmm. generation anxiety what are your thoughts there
1: yeah um Anxiety is an interesting inner state because it is a kind of a future stress. It's a, it's a future orientation, right? You don't have anxiety about something that's happening now. You have anxiety about the future. And anxiety only happens when there's a belief that there must be something you can do <laughs> to either prevent it, change it, or protect yourself. So I think that anxiety is a an really interesting trait or emotion to work with because it has both suffering inherent to it and sort of the seeds of a solution right mm. that that you know if you're feeling anxiety some part of you is telling you what you care about right because that's what it's putting your attention toward maybe who you care about or the goals you care about or what it is you want in life so it's telling you about that and it's whispering in your ear there's something you can do so there's still it's, in that way it's not like depression because Anxiety motivates you to plan or get information or maybe ask for help. It can also motivate you to hide and withdraw uh, and retreat, which are often less useful. So I I can't say why anxiety is so prevalent now, but I, I do, I spend a lot of time with people who experience anxiety, and I think the remedy is going to be to stop thinking that the solution is, I'm going to tell you something that gets rid of your anxiety, or I'm going to give you a pill that numbs your anxiety so you can function in life without having to experience anxiety. One of the things that I'm often encouraging people to do is to use anxiety as a signal that you care and then to ask yourself, what can I do right now that demonstrates or reflects that thing that I care about, that is an actual choice I can make rather than you know, googling for horror stories, or just lying there in your head playing out worst case scenarios. But to try to channel, anxiety has energy behind it. And you have to channel it and actually engage with life. And that in itself is its own antidote to anxiety.
0: So is it safe to say that so much of your work and your books are grounded in mindfulness?
1: Yes, absolutely, um, because I, I feel like mindfulness is, it's really an orientation to life. It's not only a set of practices that you do while you're sitting in meditation or or moving through yoga. It's um, the definition of mindfulness that I use is it starts with an intention, and that's really about knowing what matters to you, and then paying attention, so you train yourself to pay attention. Um, you take action that you believe is consistent with your intention, and then you engage in reflection, where through that quality of attention that is curious and accepting and self-compassionate and brave, through that quality of attention, you learn to become discerning and more skillful, and it's a, a, a full cycle that allows you to engage with life in a way that um, you know that fulfills what your aspirations are. So that, I mean, to me, you could also say that's how you define willpower or that's how you define being mm. good at stress. And I believe that that is also what yoga and other forms of movement help us do.
0: So what inspires you?
1: What inspires me? I, I get, so I think about inspiring. Like literally that's about getting energy, right? Like, like we inhale, we inspire. What gives us the fuel we need to keep going? And what inspires me the most um, is listening to the stories of other people's lived experiences um, that is what I wake up and I'm excited to do is to I don't know listen to a podcast or a memoir or read a story meet people that I teach and I'm just so curious about how other people experience life and I, um, I find that when you really listen to people you let people tell their stories if you listen in a certain way, people will show you who they are in a way that is so inspiring. I, like, I feel so fortunate. Part of my, my role, many of my professional roles, is people reveal the version of themselves who is brave, who is kind, that, that version of themselves who gives me that, that benevolent worldview that I said that I want. Um, and so that's what inspires me the most is, is listening.
0: If you could go back in time and give yourself advice in your early 20s, what advice would that be? What
1: was I doing in my early 20s? Um, keep, like, trust your intuition. People will tell you <laughs> that you should be doing something else, um, that there's an, a better way to be successful, a better way to be a scientist, and that what you're doing is nuts. And y- but you know what? I trusted myself anyway, so I I just go back <laughs> and I'd be like, "That's right, you you trust yourself, and you're right to trust yourself."
0: Amen to that. <laughs> well, you did trust yourself; it's paid off. We love your books here at My Muddy Green, and everyone, please go check out the Joy of Movement, the latest and greatest from Kelly McGonigal. Thanks so much.